Part Four, Chapter Four of An Outcast of the Islands by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Four. When he felt the solid ground of the courtyard under his feet, Willems pulled himself up in his headlong rush and moved forward with a moderate gait. He paced stiffly, looking with extreme exactitude at Lingard's face, looking neither to the right nor to the left, but at the face only, as if there was nothing in the world but those features, familiar and dreaded, that white-haired, rough and severe head upon which he gazed in a fixed effort of his eyes, like a man trying to read small print at the full range of human vision. As soon as Willem's feet had left the planks, the silence which had been lifted up by the jerky rattle of his footsteps fell down again upon the courtyard, the silence of the cloudy sky and of the windless air, the sullen silence of the earth oppressed by the aspect of coming turmoil, the silence of the world collecting its faculties to withstand the storm. Through this silence Willems pushed his way, and stopped about six feet from Lingard. He stopped simply because he could go no further. He had started from the door with the reckless purpose of clapping the old fellow on the shoulder. He had no idea that the man would turn out to be so tall, so big, and so unapproachable. It seemed to him that he had never, never in his life, seen Lingard. He tried to say, Do not believe. A fit of coughing checked his sentence in a faint splutter directly afterwards he swallowed, as it were, a couple of pebbles throwing his chin up in the act, and Lingard, who looked at him narrowly, saw a bone, sharp and triangular like the head of a snake, dart up and down twice under the skin of his throat. Then that, too, did not move. Nothing moved. Well, said Lingard, and with that word he came unexpectedly to the end of his speech his hand in his pocket closed firmly round the butt of his revolver bulging his jacket on the hip, and he thought how soon and how quickly he could terminate his quarrel with that man who had been so anxious to deliver himself into his hands, and how inadequate would be that ending. He could not bear the idea of that man escaping from him by going out of life, escaping from fear, from doubt, from remorse into the peaceful certitude of death, he held him now, and he was not going to let him go, to let him disappear forever in the faint blue smoke of a pistol shot. His anger grew within him. He felt a touch as of a burning hand on his heart, not on the flesh of his breast, but a touch on his heart itself, on the palpitating and untiring particle of matter that responds to every emotion of the soul, that leaps with joy, with terror, or with anger. He drew a long breath. He could see before him the bare chest of the man expanding and collapsing under the wide-open jacket. He glanced aside and saw the bosom of the woman near him rise and fall in quick respirations that moved slightly up and down her hand, which was pressed to her breast with all the fingers spread out and a little curved, as if grasping something too big for its span. And nearly a minute passed. One of those minutes when the voice is silenced while the thoughts flutter in the head like captive birds inside a cage, in rushes desperate, exhausting, and vain. During that minute of silence Lingard's anger kept rising, 
immense and towering, such as a crested wave running over the troubled shallows of the sands. Its roar filled his ears, a roar so powerful and distracting that, it seemed to him, his head must burst directly with the expanding volume of that sound. He looked at that man, that infamous figure upright on its feet, still, rigid, with stony eyes, as if its rotten soul had departed that moment and the carcass hadn't had the time yet to topple over. For the fraction of a second he had the illusion and the fear of the scoundrel having died there before the enraged glance of his eyes. Willem's eyelids fluttered, and the unconscious and passing tremor in that stiffly erect body exasperated Lingard like a fresh outrage. The fellow dared to stir, dared to wink, to breathe, to exist, here, right before his eyes. His grip on the revolver relaxed gradually. As the transport of his rage increased, so also his contempt for the instruments that pierce or stab, that interpose themselves between the hand and the object of fate. He wanted another kind of satisfaction. Naked hands by heaven, no firearms, hands that could take him by the throat, beat down his defense, batter his face into shapeless flesh, hands that could feel all the desperation of his resistance and overpower it in the violent delight of a contact lingering and furious, intimate and brutal. He let go the revolver altogether, stood hesitating, then throwing his hands out, strode forward, and everything passed from his sight. He could not see the man, the woman, the earth, the sky, saw nothing as if in that one stride he had left the visible world behind to step into a black and deserted space. He heard screams round him in that obscurity, screams like the melancholy and pitiful cries of seabirds that dwell on the lonely reefs of great oceans. Then suddenly a face appeared within a few inches of his own. His face! He felt something in his left hand, his throat. Ah, the thing like a snake's head that darts up and down. He squeezed hard. He was back in the world. He could see the quick beating of eyelids over a pair of eyes that were all whites, the grin of a drawn-up lip, a row of teeth gleaming through the drooping hair of a moustache. Strong, white teeth knocked them down his lying throat. He drew back his right hand, the fist up to the shoulder, knuckles out. From under his feet rose the screams of seabirds, thousands of them. Something held his legs. What the devil! He delivered his blow straight from the shoulder, felt the jar right up his arm, and realized suddenly that he was striking something passive and unresisting. His heart sank within him with disappointment, with rage, with mortification. He pushed with his left arm, opening the hand with haste, as if he had just perceived that he got hold by accident of something repulsive, and he watched with stupefied eyes Willem's tottering backwards and groping strides the white sleeve of his jacket across his face. He watched his distance from that man increase while he remained motionless without being able to account to himself for the fact that so much empty space had come in between them. It should have been the other way. They ought to have been very close and, ah, he wouldn't fight, he wouldn't resist, he wouldn't defend himself. A cur, evidently a cur. He was amazed and aggrieved, profoundly, bitterly, with the immense and blank desolation of a small child robbed of a toy. He shouted, unbelieving, "'Will you be a cheat to the end?' He waited for some answer. 
he waited anxiously with an impatience that seemed to lift him off his feet he waited for some word some sign for some threatening stir nothing only two unwinking eyes glittered intently at him above the white sleeve he saw the raised arm detach itself from the face and sink along the body a white-clad arm with the big stain on the white sleeve a red stain there was a cut on the cheek it bled the nose bled too the blood ran down made one moustache look like a dark rag stuck over the lip and went on in a wet streak down the clipped beard on one side of the chin a drop of blood hung on the end of some hairs that were glued together it hung for a while and took a leap down on the ground many more followed leaping one after another in close file one alighted on the breast and glided down instantly with devious vivacity like a small insect running away it left a narrow dark track on the white skin he looked at it looked at the tiny inactive drops looked at what he had done with obscure satisfaction with anger with regret this wasn't much like an act of justice he had a desire to go up nearer to the man to hear him speak to hear him say something atrocious and wicked that would justify the violence of the blow he made an attempt to move and became aware of a close embrace round both his legs just above the ankles instinctively he kicked out with his foot broke through the close bond and felt at once the clasp transferred to his other leg the clasp warm desperate and soft of human arms he looked down bewildered he saw the body of the woman stretched at length flattened on the ground like a dark blue rag she trailed face downwards clinging to his leg with both arms in a tenacious hug he saw the top of her head the long black hair streaming over his foot all over the beaten earth around his boot he couldn't see his foot for it he heard the short and repeated moaning of her breath he imagined the invisible face close to his heel with one kick into that face he could free himself he dared not stir and shouted down let go let go let go the only result of his shouting was a tightening of the pressure of her arms with a tremendous effort he tried to bring his right foot up to his left and succeeded partly he heard distinctly the rub of her body on the ground as he jerked her along he tried to disengage himself by drawing up his foot he stamped he heard a voice saying sharply steady captain lingard steady his eyes flew back to willems at the sound of that voice and in the quick awakening of sleeping memories lingard stood suddenly still appeased by the clear ring of familiar words appeased as in the days of old when they were trading together when willems was his trusted and helpful companion in out-of-the-way and dangerous places when that fellow who would keep his temper so much better than he could himself had spared him many a difficulty had saved him from many an act of hasty violence by the timely and good-humoured warning whispered or shouted steady captain lingard steady a smart fellow he had brought him up the smartest fellow in the islands if he had only stayed with him then all this he called out to willems tell her to let me go or he heard willems shouting something waited for a while then glanced vaguely down and saw the woman still stretched out perfectly mute and unstirring with her head at his feet he felt a nervous impatience that somehow resembled fear tell her to let go to go away willems i tell you i've had enough of this he cried 
"'All right, Captain Lingard,' answered the calm voice of Willems. "'She has let go. Take your foot off her hair. She can't get up.' Lingard leaped aside, clean away, and spun round quickly. He saw her sit up and cover her face with both hands, then he turned slowly on his heel and looked at the man. Willems held himself very straight, but was unsteady on his feet, and moved about nearly on the same spot, like a tipsy man attempting to preserve his balance. After gazing at him for a while, Lingard called rankous and irritable. "'What have you got to say for yourself?' Willems began to walk towards him. He walked slowly, reeling a little before he took each step, and Lingard saw him put his hand to his face, then look at it holding it up to his eyes, as if he had there, concealed in the hollow of the palm, some small object which he wanted to examine secretly. Suddenly he drew it with a brusque movement down the front of his jacket, and left a long smudge. "'That's a fine thing to do,' said Willems. He stood in front of Lingard, one of his eyes sunk deep in the increasing swelling of his cheek, still repeating mechanically the movement of feeling his damaged face, and every time he did this he pressed the palm to some clean spot on his jacket, covering the white cotton with bloody imprints as of some deformed and monstrous hand. Lingard said nothing, looking on. At last Willems left off staunching the blood and stood, his arms hanging by his side with his face stiff and distorted under the patches of coagulated blood, and he seemed as though he had been set up there for a warning, an incomprehensible figure marked all over with some awful and symbolic signs of deadly import. Speaking with difficulty, he repeated, in a reproachful tone, "'That was a fine thing to do.' "'After all,' answered Lingard bitterly, "'I had too good an opinion of you, and I of you.' Don't you see that I could have had that fool over there killed, and the whole thing burnt to the ground, swept off the face of the earth? You wouldn't have found as much as a heap of ashes, had I liked. I could have done all that, and I wouldn't. You could not. You dared not. You scoundrel! cried Lingard. What's the use of calling me names? True, retorted Lingard. There's no name bad enough for you. There was a short interval of silence. At the sound of their rapidly exchanged words, Isa had got up from the ground where she had been sitting in a sorrowful and dejected pose, and approached the two men. She stood on one side and looked on eagerly, in a desperate effort of her brain, with the quick and distracted eyes of a person trying for her life to penetrate the meaning of sentences uttered in a foreign tongue, the meaning portentous and fateful that lurks in the sounds of mysterious words in the sounds surprising, unknown and strange. Willems let the last beat of Lingard pass by, seemed by a slight movement of his hand to help it on its way to join the other shadows of the past. Then he said, "'You have struck me. You have insulted me.' "'Insulted you?' interrupted Lingard passionately. "'Who? What can insult you? You?' He choked, advanced a step. "'Steady, steady,' said Willems calmly. I tell you, I shan't fight. Is it clear enough to you that I shan't? I shall not lift a finger. As he spoke, slowly punctuating each word, with a slight jerk of his head, he stared at Lingard, his right eye open and big, the left small and nearly closed by the swelling of one half of his face that appeared all drawn out on one side like faces seen in a concave glass. 
and they stood exactly opposite each other, one tall, slight, and disfigured, the other tall, heavy, and severe. Willems went on. If I had wanted to hurt you, if I had wanted to destroy you, it was easy. I stood in the doorway long enough to pull a trigger, and you know I shoot straight. You would have missed, said Lingard with assurance. There is under heaven such a thing as justice. The sound of that word on his own lips made him pause, confused like an unexpected and unanswerable rebuke. The anger of his outraged heart had gone out in the blow, and there remained nothing but the sense of some immense infamy, of something vague, disgusting, and terrible, which seemed to surround him on all sides, hover about him with shadowy and stealthy movements, like a band of assassins in the darkness of vast and unsafe places. Was there, under heaven, such a thing as justice? He looked at the man before him with such an intensity of prolonged gaze that he seemed to see right through him that at last he saw but a floating and unsteady mist in human shape. Would it blow away before the first breath of the breeze and leave nothing behind? The sound of Willem's voice made him start violently. Willems was saying, I have always led a virtuous life. You know I have. You always praised me for my steadiness. You know you have. You know also I never stole, if that's what you're thinking of. I borrowed. You know how much I repaid. It was an error of judgment. But then consider my position there. I had been a little unlucky in my private affairs and had debts. Could I let myself go under before the eyes of all those men who envied me? But that's all over. It was an error of judgment. I've paid for it. An error of judgment. Lingard, astounded into perfect stillness, looked down. He looked down at Willem's bare feet. Then, as the other had paused, he repeated in a blank tone. An error of judgment? Yes, drawled out Willems thoughtfully and went on with increasing animation. As I said, I have always led a virtuous life. More so than Hudig, than you. Yes, than you. I drank a little, I played cards a little, who doesn't? But I had principles from a boy. Yes, principles. Business is business, and I never was an ass. I never respected fools. They had to suffer for their folly when they dealt with me. The evil was in them, not in me. But as to principles, it's another matter. I kept clear of women. It's forbidden. I had no time. And I despised them. Now I hate them. He put his tongue out a little, a tongue whose pink and moist end ran here and there, like something independently alive under his swollen and blackened lip. He touched with the tips of his fingers the cut on his cheek, felt all round it with precaution and the unharmed side of his face appeared for a moment to be preoccupied and uneasy about the state of that other side which was so very sore and stiff. He recommenced speaking, and his voice vibrated as though with repressed emotion of some kind. You ask my wife, when you see her in the casa, whether I have no reason to hate her. She was nobody, and I made her Mrs. Willems, a half-caste girl. You ask her how she showed her gratitude to me. You ask, never mind that. When you came and dumped me here like a load of rubbish, dumped me here and left me with nothing to do, nothing good to remember, and damn little to hope for. You left me here at the mercy of that fool Almayer, 
who suspected me of something of what devil only knows but he suspected and hated me from the first i suppose because you befriended me oh i could read him like a book he isn't very deep your sambir partner captain lingard but he knows how to be disagreeable months passed i thought i would die of sheer weariness of my thoughts of my regrets and then he made a quick step nearer to lingard and as if moved by the same thought by the same instinct by the same impulse of his will isa also stepped nearer to them they stood in a close group and the two men could feel the calm air between their faces stirred by the light breath of the anxious woman who enveloped them both in the uncomprehending in the despairing and wondering glances of her wild and mournful eyes End of chapter four recording by tom weiss tom's audiobooks dot com